Hey, it's Bryce McNabb, Emmy Award-winning director of McNabb Storytelling, an Emmy-nominated brand storytelling agency. You're listening to Storytelligent, the show that helps you leverage myth to build iconic brands. Consider this show your antidote to the marketing echo chamber. You're welcome. Hey, what's going on, everybody? All right, so just a immediate caveat. I am recovering from a cold that just does not want to go away. So my voice is going to sound a little off. Um, just constant clearing mucus. Uh, yeah, welcome to Story Intelligent, everybody. All right. So today we're talking about how to stand out in a sea of sameness. You know, how do you make your, your company you know, rise to the top of all this noise of everybody, everybody looking exactly like everyone else. How does your brand become the preferred choice in the customer's eye? Really, what we are inevitably going to talk about throughout this episode is the difference between how does how do you as a as the brand storyteller, as the business leader, as the business owner, ensure that your company stands out? Or how do you ensure that your company and your brand is outstanding? What we're actually talking about is uniqueness versus being selected and being preferred. What exactly do you mean by that question? When you're asking, how do I stand out within a sea of sameness? What do you mean by that question? What is your goal? Like, what's the need from where that question arises from? Okay. And it's my assumption that we ask that question in order to figure out how do we become the selected brand? How do we become the preferred brand? How does this organization that I'm the brand storyteller of that I am leading, right? That I'm the mouthpiece of. How do I make sure that this organization, this company becomes the preferred partner of our target audience, right? So really we're asking this from a, um, a need to be selected, from a need to grow the business, right? To get customers, okay? However, The question ends up becoming, how do I stand out within a sea of sameness? So what we do is we look around and we see competition and we try to figure out how do we differentiate ourselves from our competition so that way we can stand out and catch the eye of a potential customer who is trying to decide which vendor to go with or which product to choose or which service provider to select, right? Like, that's really the core motivation is we want to be selected. Here's where linguistics actually matter because when we frame that question then to ourselves of how do we stand out, we're now making the assumption that the customer wants a vendor that stands out. And our focus now is how do we become unique? Our focus and our effort and our energy is on distinguishing ourselves, being unique, being different, okay? And that's where all of our energy starts to go into. 
There's a decent book out there called The Blue Ocean Strategy. Now, The Blue Ocean Strategy is basically a book where it talks about this problem, this problem of how do you properly distinguish yourselves within a saturated um, market where everybody's doing the same thing how do you stand out? And their recommendation is that you create a blue ocean because essentially they go through a bunch of different things. It's like you can either be a, a little fish in a big pond. You've got a lot of work ahead of you to try to like fight your competition to become the preferred provider, right? Um, or you attempt to become a big fish in a little pond, right? So maybe you try to select... A, an area where there's not nearly as much competition and you know you can totally dominate in that area or you select a location where there's enough people there to support the business but there's there's not much competition there and you can immediately win so it's like how do I become a big fish in a little pond or what they talk about is you just create a, a new pond and and they they call it like create a new ocean and you and that's your blue ocean because in a competitive market there's a lot of sharks in the water so there's blood in the water so it's a red ocean that's why it's called the blue ocean strategy it's like let's just make something completely unique and different this is what Cirque du Soleil did and so they use Cirque du Soleil as a great case study um, within this book when they're talking about that where Cirque du Soleil created a completely new kind of circus right? With, the, with new entertainment, new styles. And their claim is that they created a completely new kind of circus, okay? <clears throat> but if we actually look at Cirque du Soleil and, and then really start to go, to go deep into let's look at Cirque du Soleil, there's still a strong influence of the circus in Cirque du Soleil. It is a circus, but... Right? It's a circus with a twist, right? It's kind of like iced tea, but now it's got lemon in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like it's the format is circus like, you know, like you're still it's still being performed in a sense of a circus atmosphere, right? Like now it's more kind of like set auditoriums, you know, so they almost like kind of merged ballet and um and theater with circus but circus was a traveling theater of itself so you st it's still grounded in theatrical like is it is it so unique that people really had a hard time completely understanding exactly what this thing is right like i know i'm gonna go i'm gonna be entertained i'm gonna see a bunch of varied performances i'm gonna see some trapeze and stuff it's kind of like a circus but it's a little bit more refined right? So you're targeting a different clientele, a different niche, right? Um, but it's the same thing. It's like I buy tickets, I go to the show, it's, it's live entertainment, it's theatrical entertainment, it's circus-esque, and then I leave and then it's fine. So if we actually look at like process-wise and model-wise, is it truly that unique? No, because it's familiar enough for it to still be understood by me. I don't have to work that hard to figure out how I go to Cirque du Soleil, how I engage with Cirque du Soleil, how Cirque du Soleil will, um, will uh, add value to me, will, will entertain me. I don't have to think too hard about that. I just go, right? Like, like I know it's there. I know how to do this because... 
the circus, theater, right? Like you, you buy tickets, you show up. You get what I'm saying? It's not that radically different. It is different, but it's not that radically different at its base, base core. I worked out of a, uh, a co-working space, a startup co-working space about five years ago. And I remember at the time we were doing um, kind of like a, a sort of like strategy trade session with this with this other company that, you know, we really liked these people. We we thought the same way. We had like a value alignment. So we were just doing like um, kind of like each of us were giving each other like free consulting. And so we were trying to help them like establish their brand, create their brand story. And so as we're interviewing them, um, so the the ladies running this company, it was a design thinking firm. Okay. And this, mind you, was like five years ago. So it was right when design thinking, like the whole concept of design thinking was just a seed within the startup sphere and just starting to bud and just starting to grow and just starting to to catch on. Um, at least design thinking has become more a more commonplace term. But I can't, I still, to this day, I can't even explain and define exactly what design thinking is. I'm pretty sure it's like some sort of a lean approach to thinking through a problem, really digging into its problem space and crafting a, a solution that is a human centered solution and using design. So you're thinking with design about human experience. It has to do with UI, it has to do with UX, but it's also like an experiential thing, whatever. It's complicated, right? It's even, it's, it's still to this day complicated for me to explain it. They were like, we're a design thinking firm. And we were just like, what is design thinking? And they like tried to explain to us and we're just like, what is, man, and we told them what they didn't want to hear. We were like, you got to change how you describe yourself because no one knows what design thinking is and it doesn't make any sense. And their faces went from like excited to like, mm, just like complete, just walls up, just totally shut us off. Like they would not allow us to continue, you know, it was like, meeting over partnership over because we told them something they didn't want to hear. Um, and then within the year, like they were no longer at that working space. The company, the company never didn't exist anymore and it failed. And the problem they faced was they were pursuing uniqueness. They had such a strong drive to be unique. They were so fascinated by their own uniqueness, that their goal was, hey, we're different than all these other places because we're a design thinking firm. The, the threat of chasing uniqueness is you're going to win. You will succeed. You will become so unique that you're completely irrelevant to your customer, where the customer seriously has no idea what you do and they don't even know if you even solve the problem that they have. They don't even understand they have the problem that you solve, let alone how to even find you when they even have an understanding that they have that problem. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I mean, if you think about McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's, right? Like, 
What is unique about those three restaurants? Radically unique about the three restaurants. They've, they've got the same color palettes. They've got the same sort of chunky type faces. They've, they've got, um, that's, their stores are shaped the same. They've got like the same menu, right? Like if there's a long line at McDonald's, probably going to go to Burger King. There's a long line at Burger King, probably going to go to Wendy's, and I'm going to get very similar stuff at all three of them. Another great example, Home Depot and Lowe's. These are top brands. And it's like the same store. It's the exact same store. Okay? Like, not only is it the exact same store, it's the same daggum layout. You got garden on the right and lumber on the left. And I'm pretty sure whatever I'm looking for at Lowe's is in the exact same spot it is at Home Depot. The only difference is one's orange and one's blue. And no one cares. No one cares. No one is like complaining. Oh, man, I'm lost in this sea of sameness with Home Depot and Lowe's. How am I going to decide? You're going to go to the one that's closest to you. Right? Like, no, what I'm trying to do is like not make fun of you. I'm trying to help you break down this concern that you might be projecting your own insecurities onto your company when you're thinking about how do I stand out in a sea of sameness? That's not what the customer is concerned about. The customer is concerned about how do you become, like, are they outstanding? Not do they stand out and catch my eye? Are they outstanding? Because what's going to catch their eye first is familiarity. They're, they're trying to remove a risk. They're trying to find someone who is going to sweep them off their feet, treat them well. That's a good investment for them right? That's a good use of their money. Early in my career, I was working with a collective of videographers. And one day, one of them called me a storyteller. And I rejected that. I didn't feel like a storyteller and didn't feel right calling myself one. You know, Steven Spielberg, Stephen King, those guys are storytellers. I was making videos, man. I wasn't a storyteller. And the reason why it felt uncomfortable is because I knew the truth. I had no idea what a story was, let alone how to even tell one. Which is extremely ironic because we are natural born storytellers. Stories are such a significant part of our life. In fact, they're the fabric of our existence. Your identity is a story. So I wanna give you a gift. Because as a listener of this show, you deserve to own the title of Storyteller. I've created the first ever Storytelligent Guidebook called Turn Strangers Into Advocates. And honestly, this is a guidebook. I'm giving you a very practical understanding of what a story is, along with my five-step brand story framework. This is it, guys. This is my breadwinner. It has helped me win three regional Emmy Awards and helped my clients generate over $450 million worth of revenue. And it's yours absolutely free. So head on over to McNabbStorytelling.com. You can download it there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Let's just say I need a mattress. Okay, when I'm trying to find a mattress, I'm probably going to go to Google and I'm going to Google mattress or whatever my 
keywords are that I want for my mattress, and I'm going to start Googling. I'm going to start doing research. I'm going to start trying to figure out what type of mattress I want. Then I'm going to try to figure out mattress stores near me. I'm going to go to Google Maps. I'm going to try to find mattress stores that are near me, and I'm going to probably go to the closest mattress store, right? Now, part of this depends on um, I'm using as an example what we might consider a commodity, right? So, like, the more that we differentiate ourselves and, like, the, the more niche your stuff is, you might not be a commodity, right? You might actually be a specialist. But I'm just using this as a base example of commodity, right? Like, I'm trying to find something that is obvious, Within that moment, I'm trying to, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the thing that is first, I'm looking for the thing that is obvious, but then my concern, once I found, once I found the result of what is near me, I want to know, are they going to take good care of me? What reviews do they have? Like, um, do they look legit? Are they professional? You know, and all these impressions that I'm getting from like, how their website looks, how's pictures of their interior look, the amount of reviews that they have, what customers are saying about them, the price points that they have, like those are informing my decision about selecting that business. I'm not, <laughs> what I'm not doing is trying to go on like this weird safari online about like what type of boutique uh, mattress place I can, I can find right? Like, no, I want to, I want to figure out the solution to this answer, like with it immediately, right? That's what a customer is concerned about. So we're concerned about uniqueness. A customer is concerned about obvious, first, outstanding. That's what the customer is concerned about. So we don't honestly want to become unique. What we need to become is familiar we need to become recognizable. We need, to be, we need to communicate assurance because the customer, the customer's decision is based on risk. It's based on removing risk. All the things like concerns are fears about risks. And it's our job to remove those concerns, to remove those fears, to remove risks. That's, that's what we're here to do within businesses, remove a risk, solve a problem. So we do that by not creating more problems for ourselves, by making it really complicated for them to find us. We need to make it as easy as possible for them to find us, make it as obvious as possible what we do, and then like, be as outstanding as possible with what we provide. So now here's the tips. Here's the tips. How do we actually stand out within a sea of sameness? Well, first off, we don't use that question. Okay. We stop using this question of how do we stand out within a sea of sameness? Our question now becomes, how do we become the preferred partner and the preferred brand for this potential customer? How do we become the preferred brand in their mind? And the first way to do that is we choose the smallest viable audience. So Seth Godin talks a lot about the smallest viable audience, the minimum viable audience, um, very similar to like a minimum viable product. He places that on the audiences. This is a way of thinking through niching down, right? People talk about the riches are in the niches. Basically what that means is like, 
identify the smallest viable audience, the, the minimum viable audience, the smallest group of people that can support your business financially. And this is, this is what you do when you're starting out. Okay. So if you're, if you're currently in business, like ignore this first point, but, but you want to, you want to identify like who this target audience is, who this target customer is and design everything for them. That way you want to become and you want to create the most outstanding product or service and, and therefore brand for that customer. You become a student of them. You, you, you devote everything to them, to making their lives better and to making your company the obvious choice for them. And it's, it's kind of like a lot of these things are, dis- are, are done. It's like, how do I do that? It's like, first off, change your perspective. Literally devote yourself to them. It's going to make all the other tactical questions very obvious because now you're devoted to them. You're acting out of devotion. You're, you're really genuinely concerned about the problems that they're facing. You are genuinely concerned about raising their quality of life, improving their quality of life. Like you want to make them feel great. You want their experience to be awesome because then they're going to come back. Part of brand storytelling isn't telling stories about your company. It is the stories they're going to tell about your brand after experiencing your company. Part of that is amazing customer service. So here's the next the next step is provide either amazing, incredible customer service or amazing, incredible results. So you kind of can be a jerk, okay? Not telling you to be a jerk, but it's excusable. Jerkish behavior is excusable when the results you're you're achieving are astronomical, okay? Um I am not trying to encourage you to be a jerk, all right? Like, but your results better be daggum good. Or your service, the customer service, has got to be remarkable. And so either your results, so the effectiveness of your product or or service, or your customer service. Those two things. Focus on improving those things. At every single customer touch point, wow them. By the end of the engagement, the results that they're going to get from doing business with you, wow them. Like either become an expert at what you do or become an expert at treating them well. And then the third thing is, actually, I've got four four things. So the third thing is direct response marketing. Ouch. Hurts to say it, right? It's like, wait, I thought you were a brand storyteller. Why are you telling me to do direct response marketing? Please go back and watch the episode of When to Tell Your Brand Story and and pay attention to the five levels of, of brand development, right? The f- level one is your brand is what you do. The story is the product or service that you're offering, Right? And within level one, it's all about growing brand awareness. And part of growing brand awareness is you got to get customers. Part of getting customers becoming obvious. And the, the people who have figured out being obvious 
are direct response people, right? So yeah, there's a lot that we can learn from them. Now, I'm not saying like to at the detriment of your integrity or at the detriment of the the level of professionalism that your image is communicating, right? Because we associate the idea of direct response with tackiness, with just grossness, with, um, you know, there's a sludge. Those people are the sludge in the bottoms of our shoes, right? Like, but they're brilliant. They're brilliant at, at immediately resonating with someone and immediately forming a connection and immediately getting them to respond, right? Like, so start using direct response tactics. And when I say direct response tactics, I specifically mean improve your copywriting. Use words, right? Like, get better at, at crafting your value proposition, at, um, at crafting the copy in your in your website, crafting the copy in your social media posts, like get really good at stripping away all of this drive to be unique and get as obvious as possible. So that way when someone reads it, they know this is for me. This is I know exactly what they do. I know that it's for me. And and judging by the level of professionalism that I see that I'm seeing, I know that they're gonna take great care of me and they're outstanding. They're the, they're the best choice. All right. Um, fourth thing, SEO, lean into SEO and you're going to, because you want to be first, you want to be selected, right? And the way that you get selected, remember that customer journey, they went online and they searched, right? Optimize your brand to be searchable. Search engine optimization, SEO, when, when within your sphere, like what you do, your target customer, identify core keywords that the, your customer base uses along their buying journey. What they're concerned about, like like what are they going to search for, you know? And this goes back to the first thing, which is study your customer. As you study your customer, you're going to start understanding the words they use, how they search, even ask them if they can possibly remember, like, how did you find us? What did you search for? You know, like, start keeping a list and keeping notes of this. Use websites like Answer the Public, Uber Suggest, Google Trends, just the Google search box, like type in, type in keyword combinations and see what pops up as suggestions, right? There's a, there's a lot of ways to do this without even spending any money and without even having to hire like a professional SEO firm or a marketing agency to do it for you. There's a lot of like basic things you can go ahead and do to give yourself a solid enough foundation that you start to become searchable and relevant. Create SEO content, evergreen SEO content that drives traffic to your website and to you. You need to get found, right? So that's the fourth thing to do. And I'll toss in a fifth thing because the fifth thing is focus on looking professional. So stylistically within your brand, your visual brand identity, all right? Um, and here's the fun part, right? So I'm giving you a, a free, like an extra one because it's it's fun. It's like, don't, Focus on how you stylistically make yourself unique. Focus on looking as professional as possible, right? Um, maybe not use a logo that looks like it was created from clip art, 
okay? Maybe uh, don't use a, a social media design that makes your brand look dumb, right? Like, like that looks cheap, you know? Like stop doing things that don't use a website that looks like it was made in the 90s. You know, stop doing things that cheapen your brand image. Like it's not... It, Use templates, right? Use very professionally created templates if you have to, you know, like up level your brand image. So hope this was helpful for you. Um, again, next time you hear uh, how do you stand out and see a sameness, you get that pressure that you feel like you need to follow that, ignore it, put it out of your mind. Know that that's just going to lead you down the road of irrelevance and your job is to make your brand the relevant, obvious choice for your customers. Um, as always, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Storytelligent. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love to receive a rating and review from you guys. Uh, we just got a really awesome one uh, recently. And so thank you very much to those who have already rated this podcast. Currently, we're a five-star rated podcast, right? We only have like four ratings, but we're a five-star rated podcast. Oh, oh man. So... Uh, yeah, would, would really appreciate the support and I will see you in the next one. Take care.